They shall grow not old, as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. We're filming this week's podcast on Sunday, November 11th, 2018. It is exactly 100 years since the end of the First World War. Centenary events have taken place all around the world to mark this momentous date. Um, I feel, personally, the UK has been leading up to this event since the centenary of the start of World War I in 2014. Um, there's been four years of milestones, remembrances, installations and exhibitions up and down the country. The blood-swept lands and seas of red installation in the Motive Tower of London seemed to kick everything off when 888,246 ceramic red poppies were planted. Um, I actually have one of those poppies. Um, I was lucky enough to get on the website quickly and buy one, as did my mum, weirdly enough, considering they went out of stock quite quickly. Me and my mum managed to get one. Um, they were only £25, and I have it in my living room all the time. I love it. It just sits there looking all nice and pretty. I think that was a very tastefully done installation, and the recent one they've done as well with the with the moat on fire. Yeah. That was, that was fantastic. So... Um, Today we are joined with a special guest, um, our friend Ian. Hello Ian. Hi friends. Yep, he's come to join us. Um, he is a fellow historian. Um, he also um, has affiliations with the war, not with the war, with the army, as he was in it, kind of. In the army, not the war. Yeah. <laughs> Great start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, so Ian, what does remembrance mean to you? <clears throat> Um, I think having been in the Army Reserve for just over three years um, and as a musician we are always out on parade we're always remembering everyone but obviously in particular you're always remembering someone and especially this year for the end of the First World War my great granddad was in the First World War as a chief petty officer in the Royal Navy so he was a submariner during the war and survived through the war and made it to the Second World War, where he was unfortunately torpedoed off the coast of Malta. Wow. Yeah. I don't think many people have any happy memories of either war, really. No, but you hadn't told us that story, so I genuinely don't know what, really what to say to that, if I'm honest. I mean, I think the reflex is to say, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, but obviously you, you didn't know them, so yeah. I'm, I'm sort mm. of... My condolences, I think. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a tricky one because obviously there's there's no one in the country that is not touched or wasn't touched in some way affected by by the war. Yeah. Um. I mean, I recently found out that I have a great great aunt, my mum's great aunt, who was a nurse, um, and she was out in France, and her date of death is registered in August 1917, um, in France. We don't know how she died, what happened. We just know she was killed out there. Wow. She may have been a journalist, because a lot of journalists went over there when they weren't supposed to, to report on the war. Um, she, was a, she was a nurse. We just oh. don't know what happened. Wow. Yeah, something happened. Something went wrong. Well, my my story, I, I have a story. Uh, my great-granddad was in World War One, mm-hmm. um, but I don't... As, I guess I don't feel selfish saying it, but he survived. He lived until he was in till 1980s. Mm. He survived the First World War, he survived the Second World War. Yeah, I mean obviously there there were there were survivors. I mean we've recently said goodbye to the last Tommy, so there were people around that could have, that could have told us about it. Yeah. yeah. But um, it's amazing what we actually we know about the war. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but it isn't always clear on what happened and more importantly why it happened as the reasoning behind it can get somewhat confused yep um have you seen the show blackadder i love blackadder it's like the best show ever yeah it's really good um and they i was watching it today uh, because i was trying to get you know some some uh facts for uh for this podcast and you remember they had uh, the, the famous sketch where they were trying to it was on the last episode when they were mm-hmm. going to be go told to go over the top and Rowan Atkinson's character decides to pretend that he's mad gone mad yeah <laughs> they ask they say so why did World War One start yeah and the reply was um some bloke called Archie Duke shot an ostrich because he was hungry I don't think some of the wording is right. There was someone called Art there was an Archduke. There was a place called Hungary involved, but yeah. Um but no, there that obviously that that was incorrect. But there were many key players in World War One. Um it began in nineteen fourteen after the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. But why was he assassinated on the twenty eighth of June nineteen fourteen? Um, tensions had been brewing throughout Europe, especially in the troubled Balkan region of southeast Europe, for years before World War One actually broke out. A number of alliances involving European powers, the Ottoman Empire, Russia and other parties had existed for years, but political instability in the Balkans, particularly Bosnia, Serbia, Herzegovina, um, they threatened to destroy those agreements. And the spark that ignited World War One was struck in Sarajevo in Bosnia when Archduke Franz Ferdinand heir to the Austro-Hungarian Empire at the time, was shot dead along with his wife Sophie by Serve- uh, Serbian nationalist Gavrilo Princip, and that was, as you say, on June the 28th, 1914. And Princip and other nationalists were struggling to end the Austro-Hungarian rule over Bosnia and Herzegovina. That was the, that was the goal there. Um, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand then set off a rapidly escalating chain of events, so it was like falling dominoes. Um, Austria-Hungary, like many countries around the world, they blamed the Serbian government for the attack and hoped to use the incident as justification for settling the question of Serbian nationalism once and for all. Now this is where we start to get a little bit confused with all the politics that was happening around the time, all of the alliances. So Kaiser Wilhelm II was the leader of Germany at the time uh, and because Russia supported Serbia, Austro-Hungary waited to declare war until its leaders received assurance from the Germans that Germany would support their cause. Austro-Hungarian leaders feared that a Russian intervention would involve Russia's ally France and possibly Great Britain as well. On July the 5th, Kaiser Wilhelm secretly pledged his support, giving Austro-Hungary a so-called carte blanche or blank check assurance of Germany's backing in the case of war. So then at um, 6pm on July the 23rd, 1914, nearly a month after the Archduke was assassinated, the dual monarchy of Austria-Hungary sent an ultimatum to Serbia. Um, This had such harsh terms to make it almost impossible for them to accept. Um, It was, for example, the Serbian government would have to accept an Austria-Hungarian inquiry into the assassination. Even though they had carried out their own, they had to accept that the Austrian were going to come in and do their own um, investigation as well as um, they had to suppress all of the anti-Austrian propaganda. So it was something that they knew Serbia wasn't going to accept. So they're basically just like saying, oh, well, we tried, but they knew they'd never say yes. Well, spoiler alert, they said no. Mm-hmm. Um, on the 28th <clears throat> of July, 1914, World War One officially began. 
Um, you had Austro-Hungary declaring war on Serbia, and then within a week, Russia, Belgium, France, Great Britain, and Serbia had lined up against Austro-Hungary and Germany, and World War One had begun. So, I mean, it sounds they sound massively outnumbered, and obviously Germany at that time isn't Germany as we know now. Yeah. Um, so basically, World War One had begun because two countries wanted to fight. They each had allies that agreed to help if anything went wrong. So basically, it was like two two people fighting in a playground, and then all of a sudden, their friends and big brothers and everything gets involved as well. Yeah, and they all have to fight each other because, yeah, because they they just have mm-hmm. to. They all said they would. They all shook hands and made <coughs> pinky swears. Yeah, pinky swears. Yeah, everyone's right. making pinky swears. Yeah, yeah. Now, this is where the war really begins. Germany led an aggressive military strategy known as the Schlieffen Plan, named for its mastermind German Field Marshal Alfred von Schlieffen, and began fighting World War I on two fronts, invading France through neutral Belgium in the west and confronting Russia in the east. On August the 4th, 1914, German troops crossed the border into Belgium uh, and is known as the First Battle of World War I. The Germans assaulted the heavily fortified city of Liege, using the most powerful weapons in their arsenal, enormous siege cannons, to capture the city, which they did on August the 15th, leaving death and destruction in their wake, including the shooting of civilians and the execution of a Belgian priest, whom they accused of inciting civilian resistance. The Germans advanced through Belgium towards France. Yeah, um, Germany expected a quick victory in France, however this didn't happen. Um, they were defeated at the Battle of Marne in September 1914, which led to both sides digging in the trenches. So this is where trench warfare begins. Mm-hmm. Um, they would stay there, fighting the rest in front for more than three years. Particularly long and costly battles were fought here during World War One, especially at Verdun, and that was between February and December of 1916, and the Battle of the Somme, which was July to November 1916. Um, the first day of the Somme, so July the 1st, um, 19,240 British soldiers died and 57,470 were injured just in that first day. Um, the French 6th Army lost around uh, 1,590 and the German 2nd Army lost 12,000. And German and French tu- troops suffered close to a million casualties in the Battle of Verdun alone. You can't quite fathom it, can you? It's 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 just numbers that you're reading off, but when you think about it, it's... You can't. Nope. Um, we'll be going into more details about some of the specific battles in other podcasts to come, so that was hence the very brief overview. Um, meanwhile, on the Eastern Front, Russian forces invaded the German-held regions of East Prussia and Poland, but they were stopped short by German and Austrian forces at the Battle of Tannenberg in late August 1914. Um, despite that victory, Russia's assault had forced Germany to move two corps from the Western Front to the Eastern, contributing to the German loss in the Battle of the Marne. Combined with the fierce Allied resistance in France, the ability of Russia's huge war machine to mobilise relatively quickly in the East ensured a longer, more gruelling conflict instead of the quick victory Germany had hoped for and um, wanted to win under the Schlieffen Plan. Yeah, well, during all this time, um, there was also some unrest in Russia separate to World War I. Mm -hmm. Um, People were growing increasingly hostile towards the Tsar, Nicholas II, and his wife in 1917. That was after the 1905 revolution leading on from that. Yeah. Um, so this was um, spearheaded by Vladimir Lenin and the Bolsheviks. Um, Russia's simmering instability exploded in the Ru- into the Russian Revolution of 1917. Um, this ended the Tsarist rule and brought to a halt Russians' participation in World War I. Um, Russia reached an armistice with the Central Powers in early 
December 1917, um, freeing German troops to face the remaining Allies on the Western Front. So basically, Russia Russia pulled out at that point. So um, we had we had England and France and America just all and all the obviously all the little Commonwealth countries and everything that come yeah. into that as well. So what happened next, Ian? So at the outbreak of war in 1914, the the US, the United States of America, remained on the sidelines adopting this sort of neutrality policy, which was favoured by then-President Woodrow Wilson, um, while they were continuing to engage in commerce and shipping with European countries on both sides of the conflict. Um, So they're trying to keep their money and stay out of the war, basically. Sitting on the fence there. Always. In 1915, Germany declared the waters surrounding the British Isles to be a war zone, and German U-boats sunk several commercial and passenger vessels, including some American ships. Now, widespread protest over the sinking by U-boat of the British ocean ocean liner Lusitania, travelling from New York to Liverpool with hundreds of American passengers on board in May 1915, helped to turn the tide of American public opinion against Germany. Now, in February 1917, Congress passed a $250 million arms appropriations bill intended to make the United States ready for war. Germany sunk four more American merchant ships the following month, and on April 2nd, 1917, Woodrow Wilson appeared before Congress and called for a declaration of war against Germany. So it had been, like, two and a half years that um, US have managed to, like, stay out of the war, stay quite neutral, um, still managed to somehow um, use, get stuff from different sides around the world and not actually get directly involved until 1917 yeah effectively germany tragically turpined (coughs) yeah and uh uncle sam waded in Mm. americans always seem to start wars when it always happens first it's kind of on water because germany only entered world war ii at pearl harbor not germany america america only entered world war ii when the events of pearl harbor (laughs) and they only entered world war one with the events of um the germans sinking navy ships Yeah. yeah so america obviously has to be almost forced into helping yeah but it's it was very much to our favor that they did yeah and um at this point world war one was effectively settled in a stalemate in europe Mm -hmm. um the allies attempted to score a victory against the ottoman empire who entered the conflict on the side of the central powers in late 1914 after a failed attack on the dardanes the straight linking the sea of mamana with the read for me Carrie Aegean the, the Dardanelles and Mamara and the Aegean there you go see people who listen to our podcast know I'm not great with words even though I word for a living but anyway it's, it's an adorable trait Ah, thanks um, <laughs> <laughs> allied forces led by Britain launched a large scale land invasion of the Gallipoli Peninsula in April 1915 this invasion proved to be a dismal failure and um, in January 1916, Allied forces were staged a full retreat from the shores of the peninsula after suffering 250,000 casualties. Um, did you know young Winston Churchill, then First Lord of the British Admiralty, actually resigned his command after the, first, after the failed Gallipoli campaign sorry, in 1916, accepting commission with an infantry battalion in France? I did not. I did not either. Fun fact. Did you actually not know that? No. Every ah. day is a school day. It is. 
Where were we? So then on July the 15th, 1918, German troops launched what would become the last German offensive of the war, attacking French forces, joined by 85,000 American troops, as well as some of the British expeditionary force in the Second Battle of the Marne. The Allies successfully pushed back the German offensive and launched their own counter-offensive just three days later. After suffering massive casualties, Germany was forced to call off a planned offensive further north, in the Flanders region stretching between France and Belgium. The Second Battle of the Marne turned the tide of the war decisively towards the Allies, who were then able to regain much of France and Belgium in the months that followed. So by the autumn of 1918, the Central Powers were unravelling on all fronts. Um, Despite the Turkish victory at Gallipoli, later defeats by invading forces and an Arab revolt had combined to destroy the Ottoman economy and devastate its land. I mean, this pretty much spelled the end of the Ottoman Empire. Um, The Turks signed a treaty with the Allies in late October 1918. Austro-Hungary dissolving from within due to growing nationalist movements amongst diverse population, they reached an armistice on November 4th. Um, Facing dwindling resources on the battlefield, discontent on the home front and surrender of its allies, Germany was finally forced to seek an armistice on November 11th, 1918, ending World War I. However, soldiers were actually still going over the top on November 11th. Um, At 4.20am, the last lot of soldiers were sent over the top of the trenches. Um, At 5am, the armistice was signed and... At the 11th hour on the 11th day of the 11th month, the guns in Europe fell silent. But on that morning, so the last day of World War I, mm-hmm. 10,944 British men were injured and 2,738 died on the Western Front. Wasn't the last soldier to die in the war the last, um, killed at 9.30 in the morning? The last British soldier. So yeah. it's so, so frustratingly close. So then the following year, King George V issued a proclamation which called for two-minute silence by saying, All locomotion should cease, so that in perfect stillness the thoughts of everyone may be concentrated on reverent remembrance of the glorious dead. At the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, Allied leaders expressed their desire to build a post-war world and safeguard it against any future conflict of such devastating nature. Um, Some hopefuls had even begun calling World War I the war to end all wars. However, the Treaty of Versailles, which was signed on June 28, 1919, wouldn't achieve that lofty goal. Um, Saddled with war guilt, heavy reparations, denied entrance to the League of Nations, Germany felt like they'd been tricked into signing the treaty, um, having believed that any peace would be a peace without victory. And as the years passed, hatred of Versailles Treaty settled into a smouldering resentment in Germany that would, two decades later, be counted among the causes of World War II. So, um, interesting fact... One of the uh, one of the people that actually stoked that resentment, Hitler, I believe, was at the Battle of the Somme. The yeah, German. he was a oh, messenger, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. He so. was the person who used to run in between the uh, trenches. Yeah. Could you imagine how different the world would be if he Just had unfortunately been in one of the statistics of yeah. World War One? Um, speaking of, we've got some statistics. We've got some legacies about them and some statistics of the casualties. Mm-hmm. So, um, World War One took the lives of more than 9 million soldiers. So, um, there were 9.7 million military deaths between 1914 to 1980, 10 million civilian deaths. The UK alone lost 886,346 troops and 109,000 civilians. 
and six million men had joined up by 1918, which was one in four of the male population in England. Wow. Um, The Allied forces, so all of the Allies together, suffered a grand total of 5,711,696 military deaths and 3,674,757 civilian deaths, whereas the the Axis, or the Central Powers, suffered 4,010,241 military and 3,143,000 civilian deaths. And what was actually the point? World War Two. That 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 was, it. It was just a setup to that. To be honest with you, a glorified setup to that. Mm-hmm. Um, to be fair, the two nations most affected were Germany and France, mm-hmm. um, each of which, which sent um, some eighty percent of their male population between the ages of fifteen and forty-nine into battle. So 80% of their 15 to 49 year olds in Germany and France were sent to war. Yeah, and as I said, um, it caused the end of the, the Ottoman Empire, but uh, it was it caused a lot of political disruption, and it was actually four imperial dynasties fell. Um, you had the Russian Empire, the, the Turkish, the Ottoman Empire, Austria-Hungary, and Germany or Prussian Empire at the time. So World War I also brought about massive social upheaval as well. So millions of women entered the workforce as the men left to go to the front. And most of their jobs were to support the men on the front. So the munitions factories, things like that. Um, and they would replace the men who never returned. Yeah. As, a, as a result of that, um, women did win suffrage. Um, that was granted actually in February 1918, I believe. And um, so that, that was a direct result of that. But it was it was out of necessity that they stepped up. Um, the first global war also helped to spread one of the world's deadliest global pandemics, the Spanish influenza epidemic of 1918, which killed an estimated 20 to 50 million people. So in a population already decimated by war, you've then got disease on top. Yep. And um, World War One has also been referred to as the first modern war. Uh, Many of the technologies we now associate with military conflict, machine guns, tanks, aerial combat, radio comms, that sort of things, were first introduced on a massive scale during World War I. So the severe effects that chemical weapons such as mustard gas and phosgene had on soldiers and civilians during World War I galvanised public and military attitudes against their continued use. Uh, The Geneva Convention Agreements, which were signed in 1925, restricted the use of chemical and biological agents in warfare and remains in effect today. Uh, I think everyone has kind of heard of the Geneva Convention, so that's that's the root of it. That's where it comes from. Okay. Um, Now, just some interesting facts about it, just in general. Um, There was an explosion on the battlefield in France, which was actually heard in London. A hundred foot underground at Messine Ridge in Belgium, 900 pounds of explosives were simul- simultaneously detonated in 19 underground tunnels. It was that loud you could hear it in London. Yeah, it was heard um, in Downing Street in London. That's Wowie. insane. <laughs> yeah, so that must have wow. been... That's quite a bang. Yes. Um, and during World War One, 12 million letters were delivered to the front each week. It actually only took two days for a letter to get from Britain to the front in France. And so by the end of the war, um, there were two billion letters were sent and 114 million parcels were delivered. That's a lot. That is a few. I didn't expect it to be that fast. I was expecting at least a week or so in between. Mm. No, that's... that's a lot of dead trees. Yes. Yes, because 
that's the casualty they're the casualties of world war one the trees read the next fact ian (laughs) (laughs) so a lot of women's skin turned yellow so they became known as the canaries Um, and these were the women who worked with tnt during the war and it gave them toxic jaundice Hmm, which turned all of their skin yellow it's a little bit grim isn't it yeah but women they did what they had to do Mm. women weren't allowed to join the military at that time so unless they could you know shut themselves down and and become men which a lot of them did uh we had to do what we had to do and fun fact now 100 years on we've just allowed women into the infantry so all roles in the armed forces are now open to women 100 years on slow but steady wins the race very slow but uh Oh, this is a this is actually a really sad one, isn't it? <laughs> this is this is the fact to end on, isn't it? Why are you both laughing? We're not laughing. It's, it's, more... it's sad laughter. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. Um, the youngest soldier was twelve years old. Um, Sidney Lewis lied about his age to fight alongside his adult counterparts. And there is actually there's a grave um, in one of the grave in one in one of the war cemeteries in Belgium where people go and put uh, teddy bears and things on his grave. Yeah, well, a lot of children lied about their age. Yeah. Like, if you see, honestly, I don't know about you guys, but personally, sometimes I see some of the children that run around or some of the things that are put on, like, social media from, like, 12 to 18-year-olds. And you're like, you have no idea what 100 years ago boys your age were doing. No, I think it's... I mean, it's obviously... It's still taught in schools, and we do still have Remembrance Day every year. But I don't think a lot of people realise, and now it's actually passed out of living memory, um, I don't think a lot of people realise the extent of it or the depth of it. I actually, I saw something, it was a TV programme, and I cannot for the life of me remember what it was, but it was a group of like normal people that were put into different historic time periods, and one of them was the war, the First World War. And they had the men in the village. They had everyone but one of the old ones and um, a guy who had, I think he had asthma, took them all away and only one of them came back. Like at the end of it, they had to carry on the rest of that week um, doing what they did in that era. So the women went out to work and everything, um, but only one of the men came back. Wow. Yikes. And it was, it was that moment of, oh gosh, because it was about seven of them went and one came back. And you think, you put that on the scale of a village where about 400 men go and about 12 13 come back it's it's insane you you can't you can't mm. fathom it the the male population just decimated like yeah that. well i went to belgium because i was part of the army cadet force i went to belgium with them um two years ago mm-hmm. and we went to like meningate and tidcot and everything and it's just being seeing the names of people that never came back Mm. There was more names on that gate than there is the entire population of Kings Lynn where we live. Yeah. So the entire, more than the entire population of where we live just never came home. Not just never came home, they never found them. They're missing. Yeah, there's so many, so many mass graves and things out there. So many fields where they're just, they're just lying. And so many families that had no clue what had happened. No, you just can't fathom the numbers. No. You just can't. It's, Yeah. I kind of get lost for words when I try to think about it. Yeah. To explain. To explain it. You can't because e- even though we we know potentially um, about it, it's still 
we still can't quite wrap our heads around it. No. And like you said before, the last Tommy, there isn't anybody alive now who was uh, in the World War. So I feel like, as the younger generation, it is kind of like our duty to keep remembering, to keep talking about it, to make sure that the younger generations now, Mm. not even younger than what we are, that it never gets forgotten. Because I think we couldn't be in the war. There's nothing we could do. Physically, we weren't even born. Our parents weren't born. Yes. Um, There's nothing we can do at all about it except to keep remembering and I think that's our duty so then it feels like we're actually doing something yeah and to, to honour what happened yeah to remember it properly as well so it doesn't just become a functional thing it's, oh yeah we've got the two minute silence remembrance day blah 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 carry on with life to actually remember it yeah what do you think Ian? yeah it's just a very <laughs> very slow poignant nod for me in here um, well I think it is sort of our responsibility because you're like you're saying as time moves on people die people move on people don't necessarily remember the the people's stories and I think we're sort of going back to this, that sort of oral tradition that the ancient cultures used mm. and passing stories down from generation to generation so that we still do remember what happened and Things like that. I think it's important for everyone to go out and find a story about someone who they knew. I think that's why it's good that so today at the event that Emily and I went to, they were handing out portraits of different people from the war. So if you have a picture of some person that you've never seen before, go out and find who that person was, find out what they did, find out what happened to them. Then mm. you have a story that you can pass on. That's that's fascinating. There's um they do something similar. If you go to Ypres in Belgium, there is um actually in the museum there. Yeah, they give you a little wristband with the poppy on and you put in where you're from at the start and you go round and there's all these different interactive displays where you, you press your poppy to it and it will give you a story of a family member or a person from the area where you are and you follow them all the way through and I can't Regrettably, I can't remember who it was, um, the, the name of them, but it was three brothers. So I put in Norfolk because I'd just moved down here at the time. Um, I put in three brothers and it followed them through and all three of them died. Mm-hmm. Imagine being the mother. There. You, just, you just couldn't. All three of her sons gone. Yeah, it is quite something. Yeah. But, um, yeah, the thing that me and Ian went to today is called Pages of the Sea, mm-hmm. and it was 12 beaches in the country um, all uh, came together underneath... Under It was the idea of um, the filmmaker Danny Boyle. Yeah. It was his idea. And 12 beaches in the country, and look, two of them were one Norfolk and Suffolk, um, at Brancaster, and a soldier, a Tommy, um, in our case in Brancaster, was um, a driver called Stuart um, Hewitt, Stephen Even. Hewitt. Mm-hmm. And he is sculptured into the sand. Okay. And um, it's quite big, isn't it? Mm. It, it very, it's quite large. And it's they like read a portrait a, of his face. Yeah. Mm. And the poem was read out, and then it's just there, and then um, the water, the sea, was just washing it away. But it, it was happened like simultaneously around twelve beaches in the country. Yeah, I, I saw. Um, cause I actually had an interview with Danny Boyle on um, on the TV this morning about it, and he was where um, Wilfred Owens portrait was i think that's quite a beautiful image that the sea just washes it away it was a quite poignant wasn't it where we were because you said something about i think it was the poem talks about like i mean 
for the fallen the poem that we all know as the exhortation talks about the going down of the sun and we went there at the going down of the sun when they were reading the poem and i think it's just sort of like that tying together the whole remembrance thing but i think also weirdly it's sort of kind of a sad metaphor with the sand because you can see that these people's memories are being washed away with time Mm -hmm. and i think that's a little bit depressing to think of because obviously like i was just saying people's memories people people are dying off there's no more tommies left so their memories are dying away Mm -hmm. and i think that's one of the things that he may have been intending on showing to try and make people remember yeah one of the nice things about stephen hewitt though is he was buried in Greece, okay. and he, so he never was brought back to England to Norfolk shores. So having his portrait in Norfolk, it was almost like he'd come home. Yeah, that's sweet. That's nice yeah. to think about it. But yeah, so that's World War One. Yeah. Um, in a nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> in a nutshell, yeah. I mean, we're actually recording this actually on um, Remembrance Day on the eleventh. Um, there is, if you can, is it BBC? I think that's doing it. Um, if you can get access to it. There is a documentary by Peter Jackson, director, um, where he's painstakingly himself and a team of people have gone through archive footage from World War One, and they've changed it all to colour. Oh, and it's um, it's called, I think it's called um, We Will Remember Them, and it's um, it's fantastically done. They showed some clips of it this morning, and it's very very well done, and um, it brings it to life because you're so used to seeing the black and white images, but to actually see them in colour, it's weird. It makes them so much more real. So uh, that's, I think it's on at nine 9.30 tonight on Sunday. So see if you can catch it up on um, iPlayer or something like that. So people of the it. future, go back on iPlayer. Yeah. <laughs> yes. go, back and, go back and watch it or um, see if you can find it online or something um, like through YouTube because it's some of the things they've done. It's fantastic. Yeah, but we need to wrap up this podcast because mm-hmm. we actually, as Carrie said, we are recording this on November 11th. We do have a final... Yeah, we do have a final... Um, remembrance event to attend all the churches in the whole of the town are going to ring out in unison and beacon is going to be lit by the mayor so we have one more final event to attend but before we go ian we normally do ridiculous deaths but none of the deaths in well i you could either say none of the deaths in world war one are ridiculous or all of them were because they were pointless nobody died for there was no reason to this war so you could say there are no ridiculous deaths, or all of them were. But instead of doing a specific ridiculous death, Ian found a survival for us. So, I did. so guest speaker Ian, take it away. Hello. So I found the story of Private Robert Phillips from rural Wales. Okay. Now, he signed up in August 1914, as so many people did. And he was sent on uh, to the Western Front with the Welsh Regiment in early 1915. Now, unfortunately, in May 1915, uh, he was involved in the Second Battle of Ypres and was gassed by the Germans in what I believe was the the first use of chemical agents in the war. Um, But he used the age-old trick of wetting a hanky and wrapping it around his face, so he managed to survive the gassing. Unfortunately, he was then captured by the Germans a few months later in Vermeil um, and uh, became a prisoner of war. And he was sort of thrown around different prisoner of war camps. Um, obviously, everyone knows sort of like the tales of horror from prisoner of war camps, so it's not easy to survive that. And he was held in Homsburg, um, prisoner of war camp, for 15 months. And then, obviously, 
as we also know from many films and stuff, there were like countless attempts to escape and they drew up loads of plans and things like that. Um, but um, Robert Phillips remained like resolute that he wanted to escape from this camp and all of the other people were sort of too scared to escape or that they were worried that they'd get captured again. But Robert Phillips was studying all of the guard movements until he knew them backwards. So he knew exactly when everything happened around the camp until one day he literally walked out of the gates in the middle of the day. Seriously? Straight out. He just walked out? Straight out. Wow. I was not expecting that. He'd worked out to the exact moment that everyone changed. So at the guard change, he just walked out. Wow. So then he is able to escape and he thinks, if I can get to Holland, then I can get home. Um, and so he travelled for more than 200 miles um, narrowly escaping several recapture moments so oh he he came up and um, there was a story of him sort of like walking down a road one night and nearly being captured by a German soldier as the German soldier walked towards him but he noticed just in enough time to be able to like slide down into the ditch um, he eventually made it to Holland after those 200 miles and um, sort of hunkered down with a family for a few weeks before he was able to get back to England um, so he did actually make it back to Wales back to where he was from um, unfortunately as all stories end uh, they don't end happily he was then he was a miner originally so he went back to the pits um, and he was actually uh, he actually died whilst working in Bedros Pit so he died in like a mine collapse in 1934 so he went through all that. All that. A 200 mile went. journey and then died in a pit collapse. But stories on surviving World War One. Just walking out. He walked out. out of the camp. I think that's bold. I like it. Yeah. That's some serious gusto. Yeah. D- those cojones. Man, that's that gumption. Was, wow. He's got some gumption. I like that word. But Wow. I, I Honestly, I didn't know where you were going with that story. And when you <laughs> said that, I nearly laughed. I was like, what? It's like... That's great. Wow. And just to think he was the only one that actually went through with that escape because everyone else was too scared. Yeah, and he literally, <laughs> and he just, literally walked just walked out. <laughs> Imagine going, right, everyone, I'm going to walk out of the gate. Yeah, after nah. you hear all these like, like, fancy plans where they're like building a tunnel under the toilet. Spoon. With a spoon. <laughs> spoon. Chiseling away with some soap. <laughs> he walks out of the gate. Yep. yep. Wow. Well. And that's my ridiculous survival for you. That was suitably ridiculous well, thank, thank you, you. Oh, was, well, thank uh, you for joining us yeah. today ian i'm sure you'll come around for another podcast at some I'm point sure i will but be more than happy to have you oh thank you carrie yeah so this uh has been it for this week and we'll be back next tuesday